right? If we're going back and we, we get this moment where we are transitioning possibly to a new school situation, what should that school be? Should we go back to the same bullshit, the same racist practices? Or should we do something that's, that is actually liberating and uh, sustaining and affirming for our people? And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. I teach in the Los Angeles area. This is my 16th year in the classroom. And this, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to the world of education. Because we know, like you know, that education simply does not get the attention that it deserves. If you're tuning in for the very first time, welcome to our show. We're glad you're here. If you enjoy what you're listening to or what you're watching right now, please consider giving us some, some feedback and, and rate us and review us and all that so we could put those internet algorithms to use in trying to get this into the feeds of more educators. All right, Jeff, man, it's been, what, two, three months now of this socially distanced recording of our show. Um, we've kept the show going despite not being in our, being in our usual TV studio. Um, I think it's going pretty well. What do you think? You know, I I would agree. I think oddly enough, when it when it first hit, you know, we I think we we like everyone we're we're in that sort of scrambling mode and trying to figure out like how are we gonna keep everything going, right? Right. Um, and I think the reality is uh, there's been some opportunities along with the fact that you know I miss I miss hanging out with you in the studio, man. Um, but I think it has presented some opportunities for us to uh, expand the, the sort of universe of guests. Uh, it definitely does not hurt from a standpoint of booking guests that nobody's going anywhere <laughs> on a Saturday, which is when we usually film. And so, uh, you know, all of, all of a sudden, there's a lot more availability for people. Um, and of course, folks have been very generous with their time. So, uh, so yeah, I would say as far as the show's concerned, probably more positives than negatives for the quarantine, as, as shocking as it might sound. Uh, but what do you think? Yeah, you know, I, I agree. I think it's for at least for our little, you know, two person production, zero budget production. I think we've done all right, uh, you know, rolling through, uh, you know, through all the challenges of this social distance. I, don't, I haven't seen you in person since that. I think we filmed March 14th, maybe, or March, March 12th, 14th, something like that. Yeah. We were in the studio yeah. and we filmed that uh, the episode with... Uh, um, Misha Mosley and Travis Bristol. I think that that's the last time I saw you in person. So it's been quite a while, and I think yeah. we've done pretty pretty well considering that we don't have a production team. We don't have, like again, any budget or any interns or anything like that um, right now. We used to have those student helpers in the studio, but you know can't can't work with them anymore. So I don't. Know. I think we've done all right. Yeah, we're we're hanging in, man. The uh, the perseverance, the uh, the sweat, the old fashioned elbow grease uh, is making making it happen now. All that, all that. All right, Jeff, so we got a fully packed episode. So what's on the agenda for today? Well, Manuel, as usual, we got a good one for everybody. And, you know, I think that uh, one of the major realizations that anyone who's paying attention to education at all uh, during these shelter-in-place orders and school closures across the country, um, you know, is realizing and is coming front and center for everyone right now is the extent to which the equity gaps that exist in our system are being exacerbated, right? And so it's just, it's, you can't avoid it. There are painfully obvious uh, places where, you know, what we already knew and felt and understood and had data to tell us was true, um, now is just sort of like unavoidably true, right? <laughs> um, and, and so in that context, I think the, the conversation about what it looks like to lead with equity in mind has really sort of expanded and more and more folks are really thinking about, well, what does that mean, right? When we have such pronounced barriers to, to just plain old access, right? Um, and so we're gonna bring on a guest today who's gonna help us explore this question of, you know, what does it look like to lead for equity in the context of these closures in response to the pandemic? And uh, we have a great guest. His name is Joe Truss. Many of you may know him from Twitter. He's, uh, you know, he's very active online, does a lot of work with school leaders and 
um, even organizing teachers and educators around curriculum, um, and is a middle school principal uh, up in San Francisco. So Joe Trust is going to be with us today to unpack this issue. Uh, really compelling guest. Uh, you definitely want to stick around and check it out. Dope. Can't wait. We do have a long-standing tradition of only inviting the dopest of the dope guests onto our show. Indeed. It sounds like that tradition is going to continue through this, through this episode. But first, it's time for our Do Now. Do Now is where we take a look at recent headlines in education, and we have two particular stories that we want to take a look at today. So that's up next. Stay tuned. All right, folks, it's time for the Do Now, where we like to take a look at recent headlines in education. Jeff, how are we doing the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, you know, we are sheltering in place across the country and engaging in distance learning. And the major challenge for educators, districts, states, everyone across the country is figuring out really like what does attendance mean, right? So in, uh, you know, in a prudent fashion, we're going to take attendance today. We got a roll call. All right, roll call. Let's take some attendance. All right, Jeff, first name on our roster for today is Betsy. And <laughs> why we, the negative reaction, Jeff? You would, why the negative a, reaction? you would start us off with my actual least favorite person in all of education. And She's our biggest fan of the show, Jeff. I don't know if you noticed, but she likes to give a singular thumbs down to like most of the stuff that we post on YouTube. You know, I do um, respect her commitment, man. It's, it's a persistent... Uh, level of dedication and so if you know if we had a rubric that was like being a good person and a good leader she'd probably be getting like a one or a zero but on like stick to itiveness and 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 you know and commitment to the cause it'd be like a four no problem yeah she's she's a complex individual Jeff <laughs> yeah and uh, our first story relates to something that she recently initiated. Um, so of course, the, the big news across the country is everything related to coronavirus and the COVID-19 school closure crisis. And of course, we are all sheltering in place. And while we've been sheltering in place, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos has announced new regulations concerning accusations of campus sexual harassment and assault in a controversial move that upends Obama-era guidance that she argued denied due process to the accused. So Jeff, the Department of Education claims that new regulations, which are changes made to Title IX, define sexual harassment, require supportive measures for survivors, and restore due process on campus. Now, Jeff, you might be surprised, but these changes actually have quite a few critics, and critics argue that these changes may discourage victims from coming forward, and these changes include provisions that allow those accused of harassment or assault to question evidence and cross-examine their accusers. Colleges and universities will be required to hold live hearings with cross-examinations of both parties. Cross-examinations won't be done by the students personally, but by a quote-unquote advisor, and either party can request the hearing be held virtually in separate rooms. These changes also narrow the definition of sexual misconduct on campuses. They define sexual harassment as, quote, a school employee conditioning education benefits on participation in unwelcome sexual conduct unwelcome conduct that a reasonable person would determine is so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that if it effectively denies a person equal access to the school's education program or activity. So, um, Jeff, I don't know if you noticed, but the, that definition leaves out a lot of the um, sort of less violent and more casual sexual harassment that is very commonplace on college campuses um, in our across the world really and also um, these changes mean that colleges don't have to investigate incidents that happen in housing that is not owned by universities so if two students at university of whatever are in apartment housing that's right across the street from the university and there's an incident of sexual assault the university is not obligated to investigate that because it happens across the street in housing that is not owned by the university. And there's a whole lot of other stuff in there that we'll definitely get into. Um, Jeff, how surprised are you that um, Betsy DeVos is, is standing up to defend Chex Notes? 
people accused of sexual misconduct? Yeah, I'm not at all surprised because she's been talking about this for a couple of years now and uh, been plotting to do this for some time. And I think is, you know, it's really just taking advantage of the fact that everyone's attention and focus is elsewhere uh, in education right now, uh, trying to figure out our response, you know, to to COVID-19 and, you know, uh, how to finish this year well, how to do graduation, how to open next year. Right. Um, And in the cloud of that rolls out this just really harmful, totally unnecessary, uh, just just vile set of regulations that is look at look at it this way manuel anything that is being praised by so-called men's rights activists has got to be utter trash okay because like i don't really know what men's rights activists are but let's be 100 percent clear they're probably some gender version of like white citizens councils, right? Um, like these are the people who are inventing oppression in, in a world where it does not exist uh, for, for men as a category and advocating for policies that enshrine into place greater space and opportunity for men to engage but, in but sexually Jeff, that's not making sense to me. behavior. That's not making sense to me women, because the official right? U.S. Department of Education press release says Secretary DeVos takes historic action to strengthen Title IX protections for all students. Um, I thought she was standing up to protect victims, Jeff. You're making it sound like she's actually protecting the um, accused, the um, perpetrators. You know, Manuel, I've got a great book for you to read. Um, it's called 1984. <laughs> I think you're, I think you're going to love <laughs> some of the parallels between the type of Orwellian uh, titled policies that exist in that book and that exist right now in this day in the U.S. Department of Education. So, you know, the so-called strengthening of due process and protections is, is a joke. It's laughable on its face. These policies do exactly the opposite of that. And to, to give you some sense of just how bad the problem has been in recent history, uh, you know, in our colleges and universities, which is which frankly is not to say that colleges and universities are the only place where this is an issue. But colleges and universities are a huge place right. where this is an issue. And frankly, for a lot of young women, this is a place where they are first subject to you know, sexual uh, harassment in the educational setting or sexual assault, right? So a few years back in 2015, a film came out called uh, The Hunting Ground, documentary film um, portraying the, the kind of really interesting and revolutionary push towards the reforms that Betsy DeVos is now undoing that were instigated by some young women who were, who were college students and kind of took it upon themselves to issue a Title IX challenge to their university and many universities across the country. So there's some data cited in the hunting ground that really just makes plain what we're talking about here, right? So I'm just gonna shout out a few major fancy well-endowed universities out there whose data was cited in this film. So Harvard University, from 2009 to 2013, there were 135 reported sexual assaults. That's just reported. We know the vast majority of assaults are not reported, right? So 135 reported assaults. There were, in response, only 10 expulsions, right? Dartmouth College, between 2002 and 2013, there were 155 reported sexual assaults, only three expulsions. Stanford University, between 1996 and 2013, 259 reported sexual assaults, just one expulsion. Right. So this is just a tiny slice of the data that we know to be true in many, many places across the country. You have a uh, a pandemic level, right, of presence of sexual assault, sexual harassment happening on college campuses. You have a narrow set of women, in particular, in this case, women, although it does happen to men as well. Um, But uh, a small subset that are courageous enough, brave enough, empowered enough to issue a complaint or report it to the university and just a tiny and in some cases almost or literally non-existent fraction of those cases resulting in disciplinary action to uh, against the perpetrators and in some of those cases we're talking about stuff that's as egregious as 
the the women having confessions, right? Like like a text message with an admission of guilt, still resulting in no in no suspension. So it's in that context that Betsy DeVos is pushing this policy. So we joke around about her being awful uh, on this show quite a bit. And I think there's a lot of objective evidence to support that. But if you didn't believe us before, yeah, you know, I don't know what to say for you now, right? Because this is just uh, it really is. I mean, the, the definition given for sexual harassment and sexual assault is so narrow that, again, it's clear that they're trying to keep a, a whole bunch of cases out of the uh, process of investigation. And of course, they, uh, so many of these assaults happen in apartments and, and university adjacent housing. And to say that like two students from a university who are in, in an apartment across the street, um, that something happens there and the university now doesn't have to investigate because it just so happens not to own that building is ridiculous. And, um, you know, plenty of critics, plenty of folks who are trying to stop these changes from taking effect this August. Among them, the ACLU, which filed a federal lawsuit on behalf of four advocacy groups alleging that this new federal effort to weaken Title IX makes it more difficult for vic victims of sexual harassment or sexual assault to continue their educations and needlessly comes amid a global pandemic. And Fatima Graves, president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center, says, quote, if this rule goes into effect, survivors will be denied their civil rights and will get the message loud and clear that there is no point in reporting assault. So we will stay tuned to the story and hopefully these federal lawsuits succeed in trying to stop these changes from taking place this August. Yeah. All right, Jeff. Good old Betsy. Good old Betsy. Up to no good as usual. Yeah. Let's get a let's get another name for this um, roll call and hopefully it'll be somebody that isn't as much of a lightning rod as um, Betsy is. <laughs> yes, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Good luck with that, Manuel. <laughs> Next up uh, in our roll call today, Manuel, we have Brian Kemp. Well, Jeff, I know of a Brian, Brian Kemp who is a, um, a thief, someone who stole an election in Georgia, and we can't possibly be talking about him because... Um, you know, I'm trying to have a positive story here, Jeff. So maybe this Brian Kemp is somebody related to uh, basketball legend Sean Kemp. And maybe this has to do with like athletics or something. No, you're 100% wrong about that. You are talking about the racist, election stealing, Jim Crow politicking, uh, coronavirus spreading, ignorant, nasty Governor Brian Kemp. That is the a great fantastic description. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna stick with it. I know it's it's no, that's dope. That's perhaps, yeah. but uh, but that's who he is. And uh, when you make your public bed, uh, you're gonna lie in it, from my perspective. So, so what's he doing related to education, Jeff? This show's about news and education. It sure is, sure is. So let's get into it. This story comes to us uh, via some good reporting from Aaron Schilling at The Red and Black, which is uh, the college newspaper uh, at the University of Georgia. Uh, so, you know, go Bulldogs. Um, so Aaron Schilling's reporting that Georgia Governor Brian Kemp recently signed Georgia's Dual Enrollment Act into law, capping possible dual enrollment credits available to high school students at 30 credit hours and limiting dual enrollment in universities to high schoolers who have a minimum score of 1,200 on the SAT or 26 on the ACT. So just to give you a little bit of perspective on that, um, those scores are roughly in the 80th to 82nd percentile on those exams. Now, dual enrollment, for those who may not be familiar, refers to uh, a situation where high school students take college courses um, for which the student receives college credit as well as high school credit, right? So often students might, you know, leave campus early uh, to, to go across town to take a college class, or as is the case, uh, I believe in your school, Manuel, sometimes we have partnerships where colleges and university or colleges and high schools share the same campus and students can simply access those dual enrollment courses on their same campus. These courses are traditionally tuition free to the student. Often the district does pay some fee for enrollment for student, but of course the university is providing instruction, right? So uh, there's an exchange there. 
Um, so although the entire dual enrollment program in Georgia accounts for less than 1% of Georgia's total spending on K-12 and higher education, so less than 1%, supporters claim that rising costs necessitated new limits being placed on eligibility and on the number of credit hours a student can earn. So, Manuel, this is interesting. Racist Jim Crow Governor Brian Kemp, election-stealing Governor Brian Kemp, is, uh, you know, working with a complicit state legislature that is now making it harder for high schoolers in Georgia to earn college credit and progress towards their much more valuable than any point in human history college degree. What say you about this? Well, Jeff, maybe he's just fiscally responsible and ah, 1% yes, of, yes. or less than 1% of the total yes. K-12 budget is still, you know, significant maybe, I don't know. Yeah, this, it, you is, know, this it's, is trash. It, the Complete liberals want to tax and spend, tax and spend. We got to make cuts. We got to be fiscally responsible. And I think yeah. reducing spending by 0.4% is going to really help us get there. That's what I think. Yeah, complete trash, complete trash. And as somebody who teaches at a school, that's a, a, a early college magnet. So we do offer dual enrollment uh, opportunities for students with our partnership with Pasadena City College. And I actually have never heard negative things about dual enrollment since I first became um, aware of dual enrollment as a thing. Like it, it, in my head, it was just it's just like universally seen as like a good thing because you're allowing high school students to get a taste of college level um, classes and, and classes taught by actual uh, college professors and they don't have to pay and they're getting college credits so that when they um, graduate from high school, they, they already have a lot of their or a, a chunk of their college studies already done, which hopefully saves them on tuition. And, and also it just sounds so great. So when I heard that Georgia enacted this law to limit dual enrollment, my first thought was just like, why? Like, why would you want to limit something? And then as I looked at the details and as I really thought about it, to me, it's become clear. I think this is what the, the conversation was behind closed doors. Um, these low-income kids, these rural kids are starting to catch up to the privileged kids in terms of college credits, and they are starting to become more competitive for admissions into our strongest colleges because they have these high school college credits. Let's um, do something about that. And boom, here's a cap. And boom, here's a, a minimum SAT score. And now suddenly the number of students in Georgia who come from marginalized backgrounds, low income backgrounds, rural, rural areas that don't have as many resources, now there are fewer of them that can, can fight to compete and close the, the competitiveness gap with those students who are attending private schools and in elite schools and all that. And to me, this is just like a um, really unfortunate, really cruel way to continue to slap marginalized kids in the face and say, this college journey is going to be too difficult for you. And um, you might as well will hang that up and and fall the line somewhere else. It's just cruel for no reason. Less than one percent yeah. of the budget. So I don't want to hear anything about costs rising or anything like that. Like that's just it's it's bad, yeah, it's, Jeff. It's bad. It's a mess. It is in the same sort of family of public policy decisions that does things like. Uh, fails to expand Medicaid as a part of Obamacare or wants to cut food stamps, you know, SNAP benefits to, you know, to kids, right? Or wants to make it harder for kids who live in poverty to access free school lunch, right? Or wants to take away free school lunch from undocumented youth. It's in that same family of just wantonly cruel mean-spirited public policies that do not pass the smell test for any type of the rationale that is really given. This isn't about fiscal responsibility. This isn't about, you know, um, good public administration of taxpayer funding. This is just cruel, mean, bigoted policy right here, right? And I think it's important that we call it out as such because it often, you know, sort of gets debated as this sort of like, well, difference of philosophy or difference of opinion. And we can have different, you know, if you want to critique dual enrollment and say, you know, kids should still have a valuable high school experience or it's not cost effective. Okay, let's have that discussion, right? And let's talk about improving the program. Um, when you just want to cut it, 
like this and take away opportunity from you know, from so many young people, it is, it, it lays bare before us all what's really going on here, which is just an extremely harmful agenda uh, when looked at from the perspective of what's good for kids and communities and families. And so hopefully, uh, you know, th there's some opportunity to move in a different direction in the future in Georgia, but uh, this is putting an unnecessary ceiling on the, on the future aspirations of, you know, a foreseeable generation of of high school students in Georgia, and I I feel for them. Yeah, it's really whack, and this is a story that I feel really um, flew under the radar because this is the myth, we are in the midst of a global pandemic. And to be honest, I don't remember where I even came across this story because it's it's not really reported in, in very many uh, major news outlets. I think I saw somebody tweet something randomly about it. I wish I could remember yeah. so I could give them their credit. But um, I just saw dual enrollment in CAP and thought like, why would anybody want to CAP dual enrollment? Like our school is trying to build that up. And I looked yeah. into it and it's just like, damn it. And then for it to be Brian Kemp of all people, it's just like, damn, man, like a yeah. stolen election and the consequences of that, which will be felt for, for many, many, many years to come. Yeah. Um, well, this is the same trash. Brian Kemp who didn't know that asymptomatic people could possibly spread the coronavirus as of like a few weeks ago. So let's just keep in mind what kind of uh, individual Brian Kemp is. So Yeah. For yeah. sure, for sure. All right, so we had we had Betsy, we had Brian, two um, two individuals who I think it's safe to say do not care very much, if any, about our our students, especially those who are who are most marginalized and need the most amount of investment. And um, I kind of want to get that 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 sour taste out of my mouth, Jeff. So let's have someone on the show who for sure is somebody who believes in the promise of our young people and who wants to do everything possible to help build young people up, starting with helping us educators see the error in a lot of our ways in terms of how we operate our school systems. All right, so we're gonna to transition to the seminar and we're gonna talk about equity issues in the era of COVID-19. And we're gonna do that with Joe Truss. All right, stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome to this week's seminar. Now, of course, the headlines recently have all been about COVID-19, and at least within the realm of education, it's all been about distance learning and the COVID-19 school closures. But we know, like you know, that matters pertaining to equity have, have been a challenge since way before COVID. So there's been plenty of talk about how COVID-19 and distance learning is sort of exacerbating the inequities that were already present in our school system. So we thought it'd be worthwhile for us to take a moment for this episode to really uh, hit on and, and explore this concept of equity, especially within the context of COVID-19. So for that, we brought Joe Truss on to help us dive deep into matters of anti-racism, white supremacy in American schooling and equity in general, and specifically within the context of COVID-19. Welcome, Joe, to All the Above. What's up, folks? What's up, Jeff? Manuel, um, good to meet you. A pleasure to be on the show. Like, like I was saying a little earlier, this is uh, some great content out there, and it's nice to have a place for folks to plug into to get some updates, hear from some people, and just connect, especially during these times of disconnection. Uh, so, hello. Most definitely. Good morning. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to be on our show. We know you are a, a bit, I mean, between being a, a middle school principal and a family man and, and having your, your blog and your leadership series going, we know you're you're quite the busy person. So we appreciate you taking the time to be on our show. And um, and folks, let me tell you a little bit about Joe Truss before we get into the discussion. So uh, Joe Truss is committed to dismantling white supremacy culture in schools. He grew up in San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood and taught high school Spanish in Oakland. He has been the principal of Visitacion Valley Middle School in San Francisco for five years, and there he has worked to grow project-based learning, restorative practices, and reading intervention. In 2018, he started his blog, culturallyresponsiveleadership.com, where he writes about school leadership and anti-racism. He also offers leadership, coaching, and workshops related to racial equity. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us uh, on All the Above. And as Manuel said, and as a, a former principal, I know how valuable, um, you know, downtime on the weekend is. So, uh, so we very much appreciate it. 
And uh, I think we'll start off really kind of getting to the heart of the matter uh, that I know everyone is curious about. And uh, a few weeks back, we had on a great guest uh, who is Principal Baruti Kafele, also known as Principal Kafele and his uh, online community. Um, and, you know, he, he said something that really struck a chord with us, which, uh, which was, you know, in as much as there are people out there with experience, um, you know, in school leadership and in teaching that really right now in this context, um, we are doing education in a way that we have not done it before. And, um, you know, none of us perhaps really knows or can really speak to what it's, what it's like and what the challenges and opportunities are. Um, but for the folks who are actually doing the work right now. And so being, uh, being the, the sitting principal on the panel here, um, we wanted to kind of get a sense from you of how's it going, what are some of the you know, challenges and opportunities that you're grappling with uh, as you lead your school through these, uh, you know, these very precarious pandemic times. Yeah, no doubt. Um, for, first off, uh, shout out to Kafele. Great dude, great leader, definitely a mentor of mine. Um, and, um, you know, I feel like it, it's crazy, you know? I mean, let's be real. You know, I think a lot of us can try to sit up here and espouse that we got it all figured out. You know, we got the message from this person to transfer to that person, and this is the plan, and it's all under control, you know? Um, and to be honest, I think it's even more important when we step back and just say, no, we do not have this figured out. You know, I do not have the answers. Um, I'm trying my best. Um, I got questions, you got questions, and we're going to try to figure this out together and, and let's get there. You know, I think we have to start there to make sure we're giving ourselves some grace and some compassion at any level, at, at in any position, um, in any role. Um, what has been like for me, um, and I, I would definitely invite folks to uh, peep my blog that I did some extensive writing about the transition to uh, school closure and distance learning, um, and then also just some things to think about as we're doing this. But uh, just to share a little bit about what that was like for me, it was it was stressful, right? It was anxiety provoking, just like it was for everybody in the classroom, all the parents at home, the kids. No one knew what was coming next, right? Um, and you know, we were getting messages. You know, now we're kind of to the place where we're getting messages day to day, week to week. But there, it was like minute to minute, right? Like hour to hour. We're scrolling through the Twitter feed trying to get the updates, right? Of like, oh, we're gonna do this. Now we're not gonna do that. While we're balancing um, this ridiculous uh information that's on the news telling us some good information lots of lies crazy stuff coming from the presidential office and at some point we're trying to make sense of that to make the right call right and you know i think in this role of being a principal uh, we're we're supposed to be this middle manager right I'm supposed to get this information from somebody above me who's telling me what i'm supposed to be doing but i'm supposed to make sure i'm making the right calls for my people right um, and whether that's my kids, um, my, my staff and my community. Um, but some things I gotta, I gotta tow the company line, but some things I'd be like, no, we're not gonna do that. We're doing this instead. Um, so that part just to be really, uh, explicit and, and honest is, it was very stressful. Um, that's just getting ready to transition into distance learning. Right. And then that definitely describes the first kind of two weeks because now we're shut down. We don't really know what we're doing, how long it's going to be and what the expectations are. Um, and, I, and I'll also say, like, we're all also on social media hearing about what other people are doing. Oh, so-and-so teacher such-and-such is doing this thing. Homeschool teacher such-and-such is doing this thing. I got my, my schedule on the wall and my kids are doing this stuff with the whiteboard and looking at them, they're making these little map models. Like, oh, hold on, it's a pandemic. This is crazy. You know, like, let's chill out um, and take a breath. Uh, because, first of all, we need to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves first. So that, that's all going on. Right. And, and, and it would be um, ridiculous not to acknowledge that separate from this idea of, OK, so now what's school supposed to be like? Right. Um, so. When all that settled at some point, right, we start transitioning to. So uh, what, what do we want the kids to be doing and what, what do we want our staff to be doing? And as a leader, how do I set up that space for that? But for me, once I kind of realized that it, there was all this anxiety and stress going on and confusion, I just pumped the brakes and said, let's just slow down, right? Even with my staff, you know, e even if the, this is the place where the, the leader can buffer uh, some of the um, BS out a little bit too, right? In the sense of like, oh, they say we should be doing this. Let's slow down and just make sure we're taking care of ourselves first. Or we, let me make sure you're taking care of you, right? 
Um, and then make sure that my, my teachers and my staff can be taking care of the kids, right? Because like the first thing is we want to make sure that everybody's okay, right? And, that, and we want to make sure the kids know that that's what we care about and what's important to us. Um, then we can think about technology distribution. So we're coming up with plans and shifts and come in and check out the Chromebooks and write down a spreadsheet and all that kind of stuff. It's nuts, right? Sign up for Google Classroom. People never knew what Google Classroom was. Now people do. Some people do. People who know it teach people who don't know it. I mean, like, it's, it's fast. I mean, the fact that we were able to innovate to what we are right now in a matter of days to weeks is incredible because we know that change in any organization or school um, takes years sometimes or at least we're, we're told that it takes years, right? And we often do that, but all of a sudden we had to switch shit up fast and we did, right? And now we're seeing how good it is and who's benefiting and who's losing. Um, families we could connect with, we couldn't connect with. So like, I'm in the middle of all of that, right? And also trusting my teachers to say, what should we be doing, right? Cause like, this is a place where it's like, I don't know, like I don't have the best relationship with the kids, you do. Let me trust what you, what, what saying let me let me not say this is what we need to be doing let me ask you what should we be doing and then you go ask the kids what should we be doing right that's like the flow that needs to be happening that i want to do as a as a leader instead of having this kind of top-down dictatorship right dehumanizing kind of um approach to education yeah i appreciate a lot of what you said there i mean what the the early days like you took me back to the early days like as a teacher and seeing stuff online seeing people post all these like you know, it was, it was just such a rush to technology and rush to this platform and that platform. And so many folks posting things that made it look like distance learning was like in the bag. Like, I got this. I, You know, my kids are doing this, this, that, whatever. I appreciate that you pointed out, like, look, that's not, I mean, let's take a time out because for one, this is a pandemic. And secondly, all that stuff is is really misleading in a lot of ways, especially from your uh, you know, from your context where you're leading a whole school, a middle school at that, and trying to usher a whole school towards this at, at the last minute, like the, uh, you know, the, the, the picture that you just painted sounds like one that was, was quite chaotic and quite, quite stressful. And you weren't only just ushering your school through that process. Early on, you also worked with other educators around the country and put together this uh, curriculum, this project-based learning curriculum that you all built online and, and made available for everybody. Tell us a little bit, little bit about what that entailed. Yeah, so I mean that was a it's a, it's a great story because it, it was it's something that came out of nowhere and was so organic and the product ended up being beautiful. Um, so this kind of started with a random late night, you know, uh, mind wandering, me blogging, right, working on a blog of like, you know, what should we be doing during distance learning and beyond that? And for me, I've always had a firm belief and commitment to deeper learning and inquiry learning and project-based learning and all that good stuff, right? Um, so I thought, why why shouldn't we be doing that during this time too, right? Once we transition to making sure everybody's okay, right? That might not be to the summer, that might not be to the fall, but what type of learning should we be doing was the question I was really um, um, thinking about. So that looked like, well, let's do PBL. What does that look like? And let's, let, let's, let's not let it be one subject separate much like we approach education normally, right? Math teachers doing this, English teachers doing this, history teachers doing this. Um, and we know our kids get overwhelmed easily once all the projects and the due dates start piling up, let alone if we're doing that during pandemic times, right? So then right. let's actually detour from that and say, well, let's, what, what can we connect? What are we gonna connect it to? This pandemic, right? This coronavirus, this collective trauma that we're experiencing right now. So this question of how could we connect a bulk of subjects or a bulk of teachers to one concept that kids could explore and let that be the curriculum, right? That was the thing that we wanted to um, explore. Then it was, well, what would that look like? And then how can we give educators as much resources as, as they might need so that they can run with that? So I opened up a Google Doc, do some stuff on, up on Twitter. People like, oh, I'm in, I'm in, let, join, I'm interested, I'm interested. And I was just letting people in, admit, 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 jump on a doc. And, you know, the beautiful thing about this is a lot of times when we're doing work, there's so many parameters, right? There's so many rules, right? There's so many checks and balances. In this case, it's like, this is just an open ass Google doc, edit it. Let's see where it goes, right? And that that's beautiful, right? I mean, that's like whatever we do when we do informal stuff, right? Like when you guys sat down and pulled up this show, you're not really working for somebody. This is like, well, let's think of how interesting and creative and innovative we can get, right? With an open canvas. Um, so then people start dropping ideas, they start dropping links. Uh, uh, videos, um, essential questions. Then the idea was like, how do we give teachers as many 
um, pieces of a puzzle so that they can say, oh, I like this piece, I like that piece, now let me generate this uh, PBL unit. Whether that's one teacher doing it, or that's two or three teachers sitting down, right? Because like my vision on this was four or five teachers sit down and say, look, this is all we're teaching right now, between now and the summer. Um, so the kids have this also this unifying experience of content seamlessly connecting, right? And also it being relevant to what's actually going on in real time, right? And the other piece of this was it wasn't just a PBL for standard's sake, right? This wasn't just about making um, uh, the college board happy, right? Or making uh, the California State uh, Department of Education and standards or whatever. It was about making those folks happy. This was about actually putting culturally responsive teaching, social justice education, social emotional learning, um, uh, trauma-informed practice at the center and say, well, let's put that at the center and let's wrap everything else around that, right? Because this idea of a collective trauma and a pandemic, that's the center, right? And we can wrap everything else around around that and then make it connect, right? So we worked on it for about 10 days. At a certain point, 150 people are working on this document, which is crazy, you know? Like, that is crazy. That's dope. Yeah. And it's like, you know, <laughs> it's not in my school. This is not in my city. This is like coast to coast, you know? Um, a bunch of organizations that are PBO organizations that do this kind of work are also jumping on. And it just ends up being this like real like anarchist type vibe, which is dope, you know? Because <laughs> like too often we got all these rules. Um, and um, through doing this, then we start coming up with this idea of like, well, how do we cap? How do we cap this off, right? Like, what's the closure of this? And much like any good PBL unit or good teaching, you want some sort of exhibition, some sort of event to cap it off. And you know, a bunch, a few of us jump on a Zoom. We come up with the idea, and two weeks from now, uh, we're gonna have this uh, nationwide public exhibition for some teachers who are using their curriculum um, with their kids, who want their kids to look at other kids' work and see what the students have learned and what the students have said. And the only parameters there is let the kids share what they've learned, process or product, right? And let's see what it is, right? No rules, like this ain't, this ain't for no graduation requirement. This is just for what kids came up with. I mean, that, it, it'd be incredible to see what they come up with, right? So, um, and for me, I feel like this is just a great example of what we could be doing in education, right? Truthfully, the topic could be anything, right? It could be police brutality, right? It could be climate change. Right. Like we saw something like this with the Black Lives Matter unit that came out a while back. This kind of uh, uh, evolved over a couple of years. Like this is what teachers need. Right. Things like this that are central to the kids, engaging with the kids and, um, you know, collectively made. Dope. We'll throw all those links on, on the website for folks to check it out, because the way you're describing it is super dope. But I think when folks actually like tune into it and actually like take a look through it and, and click through all the links and all that, I think they'll realize like this is. This is extremely dope. And I love that you said trying to start from a place of this idea of the fact that this is collective trauma in a pandemic and we got to have to be culturally responsive and, and, and kind of center that part of the teaching and learning experience because so much of our rush towards technology during this distance learning process totally just abandoned all these ideas of culturally responsive teaching, trauma-informed care, all that stuff was like put on the back burner for so many people. I mean, it was already on the back burner for for many educators, if we're being honest, but even more so. And um, yeah, I love it. I love it. We'll throw all those links on on the website for sure for folks to check it out. Yeah, Joe, you know, what you were saying really resonated uh, with me for sure. And I, I think a, a few weeks back we had on um, for an episode really looking at math instruction uh, during the school closures. And we had on two sort of national math experts, uh, Cara M. out of New York City and Dana Enriquez Montour uh, out of Houston. And part of what came up in that conversation was this idea of when the, when the world hands you a curriculum, how do you respond? Um, and, and really even thinking about how to empower parents to, you know, to bring sort of math learning to life in the home. And, you know, I think what, what you've done and what this community that you've helped bring together there has done is sort of, you know, <laughs> accelerate that, uh, you know, in a whole new way, right? Bringing educators together across the entire country to really take this curriculum we've been offered and bring it into, you know, into classrooms with kids and teachers across the country. So, um, so I'm, I'm hoping to uh, maybe even sit in on some of that uh, discussion of what the students learn myself, uh, because this is such a rich time. And as, a, as uh, you know, Manuel and I are both uh, social studies teachers or former social studies teachers, and, and what an opportunity we have right now to learn about, you know, uh, what is happening in front of us. Um, 
But Joe, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot now to, um, to really, you know, kind of think a little bit about some of the, the equity implications of what, we're, of what we're seeing. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that you have, uh, you know, branded yourself and really carved out a space for yourself as, you know, a champion for uh, culturally responsive uh, leadership and, and for uh, anti-racist work and equity-based work. And that work, I think it's also fair to say, is, is hard to do, right? There are institutional factors that, that oppose you. There's just interpersonal dynamics and politics and, you know, compliance and things that, um, that mean you have to really keep that front and center to, to keep moving in that direction and intentionally interrupt the kind of inertia of the system. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about, from the principal's perspective, what have you seen in terms of the equity implications of the school uh, closures in response to COVID and maybe some, you know, some ways in which, uh, you know, it, equity gaps have been exacerbated or maybe where there's been some opportunities to close those gaps even along the way. Yeah, um, so I think on, on one hand, if you work in public schools, and you work in any public schools that's a school of high needs or, or, or an oppressed community, you know that there were incredible equity gaps before we got started with this pandemic, right? The digital divide, right? Access to food and food, food deserts, access to employment, right? Levels of education of family members, crime, violence, you name it, right? So for me, that, that, I speak about that also from my experience of the reason I say I, I'm from the Tenderloin is because if you know San Francisco, you would know that that's like the, that's the red light district. That's the hamster dam of San Francisco, right? Um, and nothing but equity gaps there, right? From my experience too. Um, you add this pandemic on it. And like you said, it exacerbates all those things, right? So if you didn't have a safe place to be at home, now you're stuck there, right? And you can't go anywhere else, right? And sometimes we say like schools are the only safe place kids have, and that's true for some kids, but I don't like to necessarily like uh, get on this pity party of like children at home, like struggling to stay alive, you know? It's not that type of situation always for all kids, um, but for some kids it is a better place. You know, for me, school was safer than my neighborhood. My home was okay, but my neighborhood was all bad. Um, and not safe and didn't have what I needed. Um, so you had this pandemic, so you remove school from the equation, you remove some access to some food all throughout the day, access to a safe person, a trusted adult to talk to if something's kind of going on, right? So that gets exacerbated. Um, now the learning piece is you we pull kids out of the school and, and initially it took a long time to get kids tech. So some kids didn't even have tech and access to whatever this best version of digital learning we would create. Some kids didn't even have that. Some kids still don't, right? And then this idea of, we know that our people learn through connection, right? Learn through dialogue, right? Learn through collectivism, learn through collaboration, right? So when you remove that, of course, that's gonna exacerbate equity equ uh, inequities as well, right? Um, then uh, you add on this idea of kids who were behind before, most definitely they're gonna be more behind, right? So my, my school also works with kids who were behind in their reading, right? And if you worked in high schools, you know what it's like to get a kid who is in the 11th grade, but they're still reading on the seventh grade, sixth grade level, right? And that gap is incredible, right? Um, so our school actually offers reading intervention. We can't really offer that, not like we really want to, right? So all those kids who were behind are gonna get further behind without that resource and that service. We also serve newcomer students who are brand new to the country, right? And I was just hearing something recently that said, if you are at home and everybody speaks your home language, you're definitely not gonna be working on that, that target language, right? In this case, English, right? So further gaps there of just having, you know, you got your summer slide times two times three, right? Um, and we'll have to figure out how we cover that gap. That's not to say that we need kids stressing out and feeling really bad about themselves, but we just need to be aware of it. So that when we do come back, um, in full force, we can do our best job, right? Because I mean, we you know we can't correct decades of of systemic oppression, right? During a pandemic when we can't even get to the people with no money, you know what I mean? Like let's be let's be real and let's also acknowledge the fact that schools have been putting a bandaid on systemic racism and systemic classism for decades since the beginning, right? 
Um, so if we really want to do something, if we're fixing schools, let's also talk about things in society too, right? Let's also talk about raising taxes so that folks have access to basics, basic needs and basic uh, human rights, right? That's much bigger conversations, but anybody who works in public schools are going to be talking about these larger issues because they know that that impacts the work that they're trying to do, right? So let's not just say, oh, we'll go back to school, make school a little bit better, but people still broke, people still being discriminated against, people still lack access. Let's acknowledge all those things and, and, and actually have our, 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 our local government, our, our city and our national government actually do the right thing. Right, and give folks the money that they deserve and stop getting stop letting people get so exploited that school has to solve those problems for them right right so i just want to point out that you were an early early um member of team all a's and this idea that because of all these all these issues that you just pointed out that like it's really impossible to have a a fair grading system in the midst of a pandemic and i know your district considered having that be this having all students get a's and and um i believe they stepped away from that and went to a, a a credit or no credit but you point out all the all the existing problems and how so much of that is just worse under this pandemic um reality and under these conditions. And I think you said summer slide times two times three, which is exactly what it is in a lot of ways for um, certain students in, in certain content areas uh, for sure. So you're leading a workshop in a couple of weeks that looks at anti-racism. And I believe the the workshop is is about dismantling white supremacy in schools, which speaks to that to the fact that besides all the um, problems of distance learning and COVID-19 and all that, we still have these historic traditional problems within the school, which is that schools just weren't designed uh, to be culturally responsive to, to a diverse student body at all. And a lot of schools have these oppressive practices that that really do harm to a lot of kids. We're wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this this workshop and what dismantling white supremacy means to you and your work at, at your school as a principal? Steph, um, uh, so first let me hit on this this all A's piece. Um, so yep. yeah, you know, like, yeah, I mean, that's the right thing to do, period. You know, and I, I don't care if, for me, if we're talking about equity, maybe it's not the best thing to do for 10% of the student population who were winning before and who right. were set up to win. <laughs> Right. And we're already on the winning track and the winning track classes and on on pace to uh, be further uh, folks who are winning in life. But it's the right thing to do for the other 90 percent. And that's OK. That's OK to make that call all the time, especially right now. Um, on this piece of uh, this virtual training that's coming up. Um, so I've, in the last couple of years, I've started using this framework of white supremacy culture as it applies to organizations and schools as a framework to look for elements of racism in schools. Um, but that's that's not to say that's not a new idea, right? We've called it diversity, we've called it equity, we've called it inclusion, we called it social justice many times before. We all went to culturally cultural competence workshops, co courageous conversations, you name it, right? What what I've realized over the last couple of years in being in schools and working with adults is that if we are not incredibly explicit about what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it, the change doesn't happen, right? So we can come in and say, oh, the kids can't read, so let's try this new reading strategy. We've been, how long have we been trying that, right? How long, how, long, uh, how long has it been since the kids still are not reading on grade level? So there's something holding us back from changing some of our practices. We've been saying that um, discipline is disproportionate towards brown students and poor students and black boys and black girls for how long now? But we're still doing it, right? We started talking about restorative justice and restorative practices, but it hasn't changed yet. But we know it's, it's already in the lexicon now. It's already in the ether, right? I and mean, it's, not, it's not that far left of an idea now. So what I've been searching for is what's the thing that's actually gonna unlock folks so that they say, okay, I'm ready. I wanna do something different, right? Um, or, okay, I see it, right? Because I think for some of us, depending on our identity, even for us as three brown men, our understanding of race is pretty clear, right? Um, but for folks who haven't had that experience, specifically white folks, they don't see it. Right. And they don't necessarily see how deep it really is, how historical it really is and what we're really talking about, what time it is. So what I've been trying to do is to make it a little more clear 
a little more plain. I like to use this um, this uh, metaphor of the fish in the water, right? We're swimming in the water, we're the fish, but the water is invisible. What's in the water, right? Is the water uh, healing us or is it toxic? And for me, I love the concept of it is white supremacy culture, right? We're swimming in white supremacy ideology, right? Dominate cultures, we call this different things. But if we now can name it that and help people see it, then we can do something about it in real time and also start to create the conditions and structure so that it's not operating, right? And now we're kind of moving towards anti-racism. So the idea is trying to make it plain for folks and also trying to get people to tap into the why. Because if we are clear with schools were designed to sort children, we, we accept that idea, but if we also accept that it was designed to support racial hierarchy, right? And to be a, a, an anti-Black, um, institution almost by design, right, and something that pr promotes white supremacy, then we can say, okay, if I accept that, then I can add, ask this next question of what's different then? I don't want to do that. Okay, what do I do different? Then you can say, okay, cool, restorative justice. Oh, cool, project-based learning. Oh, cool, cultural responsive teaching. Oh, cool, ethnic studies. I'm in, right? But the issue is that a lot of people don't get to that place where they're actually that tapped in and that committed to doing something different. Um, so in my workshop, I try to make that plain. I try to give people some time to make some sense of that, to practice it, um, also to practice having some conversations that are more direct, not some soft ass conversations, right? Not some conversations where we're fearful of white fragility the whole time, so we don't really say what we really, really need to say. Um, conversations when we can actually challenge folks to be better, right? To be more anti-racist, right? To be more inclusive, to be more cultural, um, affirming, right? Um, and also to be to notice when that happens with a colleague and be bold and brave enough to say something about it, but also be informed enough so that we actually have this shared language to say, oh, that's my perfectionism, that my perfectionism was acting up right now. It's not about being perfect all the time. What I also like to do through some of my training and just through some of my work is getting clear on language frameworks and theoretical frameworks help us with that, right? And definitions help us with that so that if we're okay call being a, a understanding of what a racial hierarchy is and what white supremacy is by definition, then it's easier to say, oh, you know what? We're trying to fight against racial hierarchy. So it's actually not okay if our black boys are being suspended at 10 times the rate of everybody else and getting pushed out of, of class. That's not okay because that's actually supporting racial hierarchy in the bigger scheme if we times that by 12, right? Over the course of, of K through 12, we'll say, right? Um, also to say, you know, I was actually hoarding power in that moment, right? So that works for teachers and students that help that works with leaders and teachers or any sort of district supervisors too, right? I was actually hoarding power. Um, and I, I shouldn't be doing that. Or you could point that out and be like, Hey, you look, you kind of hoarding power right now. Right. And that's not, that's making me feel subhuman. That's making me feel like I'm not into intellectual enough to, to make the right call or I'm beneath you. How can we work together better to do that, right? That's about being anti-racist, but we gotta be clear with the language. We gotta be clear with how to see it and then prepare folks a little bit for what we do, what to do with that. The last part of the training is just thinking like, how do, what do we do next, right? If we're going back and we, we get this moment um, where we are transitioning possibly to a new school situation, what should that school be? Should we go back to the same bullshit, the same racist practices? Or should we do something that's, that is actually liberating and, and uh, sustaining and affirming for our people? Yeah, I'm really glad, Joe, that you, you brought up that last part there, because that's that's where I want to go in our in our last question here, which is, you know, I, well, I was having a conversation recently with uh, some some folks and principals out um, on the East Coast, and they, um, you know, they were sharing some concern about the answer to the question you were just you were just raising, right? Like, where do we go next? And what does that look like? That there there is sort of this feeling that like the, the sharks are circling um, in the water to, to extend your metaphor, right? If we, if we are the fish in the water, the sharks are circling and the, you know, the agenda of the sharks is, uh, is not really the, the sort of anti-racist equity driven work that, um, that you were describing and that we actually risk with budget cuts, with staffing cuts, with, um, you know, sort of greater pushes towards, uh, you know, towards privatization, potentially even, that uh, we risk 
uh, undoing some of the progress that we have been able to make in the name of you know fiscal responsibility or crisis response. And so I'd love to get your take on you know sort of in this context where the sharks are circling, what should uh, we do to to protect the progress we have made and further advance uh, you know an agenda of culturally responsive equity driven leadership that that you that you advocate so forcefully um, so yeah I think it, it one is the easy answer it's kind of like we just got to do the opposite you know uh, of what we've been socialized to do for the most part Right. I mean, the, a lot of times the easy answer of what do we do instead of what we got is just the opposite. Right. I mean, if it if it is uh, letter grading kids and giving kids zeros for showing up to class and slapping them in the face with that, stop doing that. Right. Um, so that's the idea of it's moving from letter grades to narratives and rubrics and conversations and feedback. Right. So it's almost like we need to identify all these different things we want to do. Right. So moving to deeper learning. Right. I mean, you're right with the sharks circling. Right. Who are those sharks? Standardized tests. Right ed tech, the companies, right? The folks who feel like they got the answer about how they gonna, how they gonna get us through, testing, right? More testing, more computers, right? More centralized curriculum, right? Um, so also how we get there is teachers creating more of that curriculum, giving teachers the autonomy to create what's based on kids' interests and what's based on um, uh, real issues. Let that be the curriculum, right? Um, this idea of, uh, prioritizing connection and case management of kids and having that, that partnership with kids as opposed to testing kids and uh, the rigorous uh, standards-based education being the central part of the work, that's definitely got to be a part of what we go back to, right? This idea of kids having choice and getting outside. I mean, what we're seeing now is this opportunity of when you don't have somebody telling you every day where you're supposed to be ringing bells where we get up and move from class to class like prisoners, right? like factory workers, what does that feel like, right? So why the hell we still got bills, right? Why do we still have 60 minute periods, right? Why do we, why do we not have any choice time built into the day, let alone the week, right? Why are kids still sitting in these damn seats all day in these little individual desks, right? Why are they not moving, especially in middle school, elementary school, right? Kids don't wanna sit down. I don't wanna sit down all day, I wanna move, right? I'm talking to you and I'm standing up just cause it feels better to stand up, right? Um, and, and, and lastly, um, this idea of having different options for kids around remote learning, because some kids, they're really appreciating this remote option, right? They're appreciating this self-paced option, right? Uh, well, let me get in and I want to do assignment 10 before I do assignment two, because that's just what I'm feeling right now. And they want to be in control of that. And which is our kids who struggle most in school, the ones who have the most leadership, the ones who have the most advocacy, right? The ones who most want to tell us that the shit stinks. And what do we normally do with that? Uh, no, it doesn't. Get up out of my class, right? Get up out of my school, because I don't want to hear that anymore, right? But this idea of kids who, 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 who struggle in that situation, but now would flourish under this opportunity where there's choice and direction, right? And they can follow their inquiry and their passion. That's what we need, right? I mean, I, we may socialize children for this spoon-fed banking education model, but nobody wants that. You don't want that. I don't want that. I don't learn like that. I learn with studying what I feel like studying. Dope. Man, you dropped a lot of gems today. We appreciate you coming through to the show. One day when we are back in our normal TV studio setup, and if you're ever in the LA area, we'd love to have you back on to, to reflect on this time and, and all that's happened. And folks, if you are uh, listening or, or watching, all the references he made to um, his blog and the virtual workshop that's coming up and the uh, PBL curriculum, all those links we'll throw on our website, um, aotashow.com. And again, Joe's website is culturallyresponsiveleadership.com. All right, Joe, thank you for coming through. We will love to have you again sometime um, when uh, hopefully conditions get a little, a little bit better. No doubt. It was a it was my pleasure, gentlemen, um, and my pleasure is to connect with more folks. Um, like you said, hit me up wherever, whether that's on social media. You can find me at Trust Leadership on Twitter. It's my favorite place to talk shit and uh, yeah. meet cool people. Um, and definitely sign up for my training or let me know. It is on June 27th and 28th. Um, it's virtual, um, but it's going to be live and it's going to be fun. And it's not going to be your, uh, your normal diversity training. Dope, dope. 
All right, folks, that does it for this week's seminar. Up next is our class dismiss, where we'd like to give a shout out to folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, it's now time for today's class dismissed. That time in each episode when we like to pause for a moment and give some shout outs to folks in education just doing good stuff out there anywhere across the country. So, Manuel, tell us who we got today. All right, Jeff. So um, a few weeks ago, a collection of teachers got together to promote a STEM virtual summit virtual workshop type of thing. Now there's been a, a lot of virtual things going on during this shelter in place time. And um, this one had many dozen educators featured as, as speakers and um, providers of this workshop. And all of the faces were white. It was a, a all white cast for this STEM workshop. And of course, the internets noticed that there was an obvious lack of educators of color being included in, in this workshop. And rather than simply call it out and then keep on moving, a few educators went ahead and put together an inclusive STEM summit that features all educators of color providing STEM guidance. So we wanna shout them out. So Alicia Johal and Shana V. White co-founded this Inclusive STEM and Computer Science Summit, which will be on June 19th and 20th. Now, this Inclusive STEM and Computer Science Summit aims to provide quality professional development for educators focused on pedagogy and instruction in STEM and computer science. It costs $20 to $30, depending on um, how, many, how much you're gonna participate, but 100% of the proceeds of this summit will be donated to organizations that support STEAM and computer science programs, such as Black Girls Who Code, Indigenous STEAM, Latino STEAM, and APIA Scholars. So we just think it's super dope that these two educators, Alicia and Shayna, put together this inclusive STEM summit, which features dozens of educators of color and the proceeds of it are going to organizations that support STEM for our young students of color, which is super, super, super dope. This summit looks fantastic. I'm not a, a STEM teacher or a computer science teacher, but I do hope anybody that's watching this or that's listening goes ahead and signs up for this summit. We'll put the link on our website at aotashow.com. But shout out to all the educators out there that are pushing back and making sure that we have inclusive spaces for educators and students of color. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Big props to them. And this just sounds like a beautiful opportunity. So make sure you check our, our website there. Check below for the links and, uh, you know, join the movement. Yeah. All right, folks, that about does it for this episode. If you enjoyed what you have been watching, if you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead and consider giving us that thumbs up and subscribing. And if you've been listening on the go, do consider rating us and reviewing us when you have a moment to do so. All right. Until then, we'll see you next time.